Agile for Humans is brought to you by Audible.com. Get one free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash Agile. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, including Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time by Jeff Sutherland, and Crucial Conversations by Carrie Patterson. Visit www.audibletrial.com forward slash agile to enjoy your free audiobook today. Processes and tools dominate today's agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. All right, welcome to this week's episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Joining me today, uh, one of my heroes. That's it. I'm going to say that. I'm going to fanboy a little bit. It's Johanna Rothman. Johanna, how are you? I'm great, thank you. And how are you when you were so nice to call me a hero? I, no, I'm, ex- I'm excited. I love it. Every time we get a chance to talk, whether it's at a conference or on this podcast, uh, I always learn so much and... Uh, just wanted to be appreciative of that. So thanks for doing this. And uh, and I'm super excited for you. You've got a new book out. I do. I do. It's, cre- it's called Create Your Successful Agile Project. Collaborate, measure, estimate, deliver. Oh, wait. We're not estimating, are we? Well, we're doing <laughs> a little bit. We're, we're going to count. We're, we're going to count. count stories. Yeah. No. Yeah. So this was really cool. So Johanna was gracious enough to allow me to be one of the reviewers for this book. So I got a, an early access uh, look, got the opportunity to provide feedback. But what kind of feedback do I pro- what do I offer? So it's it was a fun fun experience. Um, I got to see a little bit on the inside of some of the inside baseball of bookmaking, which I've always I've always found fascinating. So thanks for letting me do that. And it has turned into. Um, just a really fabulous book. It's one of those that, again, what I, what I always say about your books, Johanna, and just your talks and your workshops, is it's practical. And this book, I mean, it really is like, hey, I'm new, uh, or I'm setting up a new project. What do I do? And this step-by-step progression, it, it would hard to be, it would be hard to go wrong with this. Is that just the intent that you had with this book, the vision? It's just, hey, if you have to set up a project and get going. These are the steps. Do a little inspection, do a little adaptation, and you're going to be okay? Yes, exactly. I really wanted to make it possible for people to succeed. And I know that you are um, you call yourself a scrum master and a coach and, and all that stuff. And I, I find that so many people start with scrum because it's so – it's accessible, right? And the scrum guide is only, what, 16 or 20 pages long, although I, if they would only read it. That would be really good. <laughs> and you probably say that too. I do. And, and what I find is that so many teams are not really set up for a successful scrum by the guide um, application that it just doesn't fit for them. They're working on three projects and they have support and they have to do these emergency fixes and – well, um, you know, I remember when Ken and, and Jeff created Scrum and uh, I heard their first discussions about it and I said, 
well, that just makes so much sense. But we were only doing one project at the time in a given team. And now I rarely see see a team that has only one project. So if you if you have only one project, then great, you can do almost anything. But if you have lots of work and it's not all related, which is what I see most often, then I think it's really important to say what do we what can we do? What how can we get started? How can we keep going and how can we finish? Yeah, I, I, similar experiences to what you outlined. It's uh, it is hard for teams to do professional scrum, and professional scrum requires, you know, it's one team, one project. You don't have the context switching. You have the craftsmanship. You have all of these these high flying these these ideals that that we put into professional scrum. But what I like here is that even though that's a challenge, you you're making it a reality, and you start right off. And what I love about this book is that. You start right with chartering and liftoff. You know the, the the fundamental. Some of the some people call it the soft skills. Some people call it the you know the, the the teamification or the working agreements. But I really like how you start there. How critical is it that a team actually gets their house in order before trying to do actual work? So I really like teams working on the work to build the teamwork. Ugh. That was too many works. Um, <laughs> we'll we'll <laughs> edit that try. later. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, you might even leave it in. Uh, but I think if you don't know that a, that a team needs to be able to give each other feedback and coaching and and how to actually talk with themselves, right? So it's I've been in teams where we actually said, and I apologize in advance, this is not politically correct, where people would say, that's brain dead. And they meant that the idea was not useful. Now, we are often, we often don't say things like that anymore, but we need ways to say, I don't see how that idea is useful. So giving each other feedback and coaching is really important. And then when you actually go to charter the project as a team, now you have tools that you can use and you can say to the product owner, you know, is that really the vision? Is that what we want to do with this product for now? Or is there something else that's really the vision? And what does done really mean? How are we going to manage all these managers who really want everything? And and they and they won't tell us in which order they really want it. So when you these are all really difficult discussions. And when the team discusses this as a team and with the product owner who is an integral part of the team and and really thinks about what are we doing what is the purpose of this and how will we know when we're done that's when the team is working on yes their work not not the code and the tests but the the work of getting together and figuring out what are we doing and that makes all the difference in the world yeah, I could not agree more. I mean, once you have that vision, that alignment, it becomes far easier, I think, to to actually start executing. And I think that's I like how you've you've ordered these these topics even in the book. You know, the when you say teams deliver features, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of writing out on the the internet right now. Um, I know John Cutler, he's a he's a frequent uh, guest on the show. He writes about the the feature factories. And the feature mills and how teams fall into that trap. Um, 
do you see that as well where now while we do deliver features but what I, your emphasis is on value of course and so i don't believe you've fallen into that trap but how do teams go from that we're focused on value but now we're slipping into that feature factory mentality and what do you advise teams to do when you, you think they're slipping in that direction oh i actually have a client who's um embedded in that problem right now and that's all because they don't have a project charter there's no strategy for this team right there's no product strategy there's no project charter vision there's no release criteria i actually i actually recommended that they stop that that this team stop trying to be a feature factory and instead work on this other program that will take the place of the features that this team is putting out. And the there was a little shock and awe at the other end of the phone when I suggested that. Because I had done, I had worked with them in the spring and the summer, and now it's the fall, and they're still in the same general place. Yes, they have better visualization, things are slightly better for the team members, but things won't get better until they stop thinking about the team as a feature factory. If you don't have a strategy for a product, then you don't have a vision for a project. And we can get into the no projects hashtag at some point. But so many organizations are using projects as a way to organize this effort for this team. And so if you're using projects in that way, then why not actually um, understand what you what you really want? I think a feature factory is, for lack of a better term, it's silly. I mean, because it does not provide strategic value to the organization, which goes back to the project portfolio, right? If you don't have a strategy for a product, then why would you kick off a project? I just don't get it. No, and, and I don't either. And it, it leads into some of the next sections that you cover. You know, how would you rank the work if you don't have an overall vision and idea for your products? I mean, how would you even set a, a priority or an order? I mean, to me, it would be impossible. Yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it at all. And I only did, oh, what, three kinds of ranking in this particular book. Because I think that at the project level... There's a lot of ways to think about ranking, but so many people get tied up in their shorts about should we use um, some kind of a value number that incorporates the ROI, which nobody knows how to calculate ROI for a software project. I, I don't understand why they do this. Um, and earn value, don't even get me started. So I think it's really important to say what you know, what do we know? And and I really, I love short stories. I love one day stories for a team, right? It might not be that one person can finish a story in a day, but a developer and a tester together, or maybe a couple of developers <coughs> and a tester together can finish a story in a day. And once you start to see that, now you can actually say, if we have a one-day story and this is shorter than the others, maybe this is a quick win and that's a useful way to do it. Well, and I, I think that's so valuable because another kind of sub-thread or sub-current that I sense throughout your book is learning. And so yes. you say that teams <laughs> deliver to learn, they rank their work, and the, they value it by the learning that they could achieve. 
like the validated lessons that come from the work. And I think that's so critical. So you've actually focused on this. I've not seen this written about in many other places. Why is learning, I mean, I, I think I know why learning is so important to you, but from a project or product context, what does learning do for the team? And why do you prioritize it so highly? Oh, because everything we do about a knowledge work product is about learning. So the faster we learn, right, so the faster we can finish a story and release it in some way, because we don't always want to release it to our end customers, but if we release it to the product owner so that the product owner can see it and give us feedback, you know, just imagine the faster we do this, if we can do this in a morning, we can finish it maybe and release it to our customers in the afternoon. But if it takes us three weeks to finish anything, then we have all this sunk cost and, and there's all the sunk cost fallacy in this about we've invested so much time in this that it's so hard for people to understand that we might have to throw it away because it's it's actually not what we want. So the faster we actually start working on something and deliver something useful, I'm not talking about delivering a UI. I I really hate wireframes as the very first thing for a UI. I much prefer paper prototypes because we can actually write on a piece of paper in about you know, what, 20 seconds, even I can do it in 30 seconds, <laughs> have a reasonable prototype and say, and here's what you're going to do after this. Is is this, is something like this going to work for you? And yeah, the colors are all wrong and I only did it in black and the logo isn't here, but is this flow going to work for you? And when we learn like that with a paper prototype and with small minimum viable experiments so we can say yes this thing is really helpful and no this thing actually isn't very helpful the faster we learn the faster we know what we don't need to do well and that's where the true savings come in right the the validated learnings show us the things that we thought we were going to have to build which requires investment we learn that we don't have to build those which leads into releasing sooner, which leads to a topic that I'm always confused on is cost of delay. So with okay. so if we're able to, let's say we learn that we only needed two features instead of five, we get to the market sooner, right? Which is mm -hmm. a win. Uh, how does that, now I know we're, we're, we're optimizing or we're, we're ranking for cost of delay, but can you tell me how that actually works and then how that uh, drives the value of the, of the product? So one of the things in, for cost of delay is, does this particular feature or even story have delay, ha have a value over a period of time? So we're recording this in November, and at some point, we'll actually get to the new year, and it will be tax season in the U.S., if nowhere else. And <laughs> I'm sure that, that the, all the tax companies are saying, Oh, my goodness, I really hope that Congress gets it together and decides what to do before December 31st because they have to respond, right? Because as soon as, as January 1st rolls around, uh, those of us in the U.S. can start to file our taxes. Well, maybe it's February 1st in reality, but it's really early, right? We start to do tax season. So 
if you get to if you are a tax provider and you don't have your software ready to go in the beginning of January and somebody else has their software ready to go in the beginning of January, you will lose all of those potential sales. Yep. Right? And that's how you can use a cost of delay to say, um, if this, if we're working on the UI over here, but we're not working on the engine for taxes over there, that could be a really big problem. Because if we explain to people Yes, we realize you have to do this and this and this, and we'll do that in the second week of February. But in the meantime, you have the engine for your taxes. Right now, people are a lot more likely to buy your product. And I think that that's, each of us has something like that in our lives. I used a game company as an example in the book. There's the tax company. Um, there's all kinds of things where we have deadlines, and if we don't do it by that deadline, and the deadline is actually often sooner than we think it is, then there's no value to it to do it later. And that's a huge problem because these companies are working on stuff that has very little value. It's that 80-20 rule that says 20% of the work you do provides 80% of the value. It's the figuring out, what is the thing, the one thing that will provide all this value and that our customers really want? Yeah, the Pareto principle is a great way to, to cut to the core of, of what you need to do and, and to make sure you don't fall into that cost of delay trap. And it's just the tax one is just such a great example. If they're not ready uh, by a certain date for filers to get going, there's no point in their product. And it, uh, the cost of delay is like, it's 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 a hundred percent in that instance. Yes. But, but yeah, yeah. So if yeah, I mean, if you think you're going to make, I'm just going to call it a number, right? Ten million from this product, and you don't have it ready to use in you know the second week of January, you can just kiss that ten million goodbye, and we know it's a lot more than ten. Yeah, absolutely. And, but that's also that's a way to actually get some visibility into your product, into the value. Um, something else that you do for teams that you, you promote for them is to visualize their work with a board. And there's a lot of different ways to do this. Uh, and, and I certainly, with the, so here's where I'll get in a little trouble with some of the listeners. I'm not a fan of the, the digital tools. I, I don't like, so, okay, I'll go ahead and say, I'm not a fan of Jira. There I said it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, please don't spam me on Twitter or hate me. I just, for me, it's, the tools are fine. And actually, for, for bug tracking and things like that, I think it's valuable. But when it comes to visualizing work, for me, I love putting cards on a wall. I love taping off areas for, um, for continuous improvement experiments, for sprint retrospective feedback. You know, having this, everything visible. Here are the things that scare us. Here are the things that we, we feel great about. Here's the work that's moving across the board. It's, it's satisfying to me, Johanna, and I don't know, I don't know about you, but... To me, it's satisfying to move that sticky across the board. I love moving stickies across the board. And when, so there's a couple things about a paper board. I, um, I really like it when teams start with boards. I don't care how dispersed they are because 
all too often the team has work that's so big they don't even move anything on any given day. So, and and an, an electronic board can really prevent people from seeing that, right? They don't even realize how much work they have either in progress or queued up because it just goes on, right? There's an infinite column. So when you when you use a paper board and you don't have any more room for for cards or stickies, I use cards most often, then you say, wait a minute, maybe we should actually do something about this. If we don't have physical room on the, on the board, maybe we have too much work. So that's one of the reasons I really like paper boards. And the other one is that people... Um, can't write that small on a card. And they can put all kinds of stuff into their electronic tool. And the problem with the electronic tools is they tend to be uh, a write once and leave in. And you never go through and, and figure out, are we really going to do this thing? This leads to the I need to estimate it all problem because it's all in there. As opposed to going to do now, what do we really need to look at now? What can we not look at? What can we avoid looking at for now? So we're not thinking about all the stuff that we're just focused on what we need to do. So for me, paper boards are far superior to everything else. And the nice thing about a paper board is if you need to add a column, you can. So one of the problems I have with Jira specifically is that, oh, and you guys are going to spam me now too, that's fine, is that you can either do iteration boards or you can do Kanban boards. But what if you want to do a Kanban inside your iteration? Exactly. I don't, yeah. So Because I've done that. I have sub-swim lanes and st- inside of bigger lanes. and <laughs> Well, because you know one of your practices is a cumulative flow diagram. Right? And, and sometimes you're going to want that sub-sectioning uh, or sub-partitioning to make that a little more granular because you're, you're suspecting a, uh, a bottleneck, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you can't see the bottleneck, then what are you going to do about it, right? You don't even know it's there. Right. Well, and it's interesting. I like how you go from make everything visible... Um, you talk about agile estimation, and I think you gave a very fair overview to estimates. You know, we even though you're one of the few authors out there who's willing to put no estimates into print, um, I think we all agree <laughs> that, which I which I think is wonderful. I think it's it's valuable to have uh, leaders in the community like you saying, "Hey, maybe there's something interesting here." You know, we want to count small stories and we want to uh, break down our work and make sure that you know little pieces, little risks, little deliveries, little learnings, and we adjust, which is all no estimates really is to me. Um, but you talk about cycle time, you talk about, but you also get into why do you need an estimate? Uh, well, here are the estimation traps, which I think is wonderful. You talk about knowing what done means, because if you don't know what done means, your estimates are worthless. Uh, you, t- you talk about agile measurements, but all of it leads into, even your value discussions, it leads into the ability to report your project state, which I think a lot yep. of agilists miss. And so understanding that we do estimation and make things visible, we know what done means, we know what value means, because ultimately people need answers, right? Yeah. I mean, I, 
I managed projects inside an organization for many years, projects and programs. I coach project managers and program managers. I help projects and programs untangle themselves. And people want to know where are we? And this is an absolutely valid question. Right. I always want to know where I am also in my projects, but I can't look at a local measurement like, um, say, velocity, not to pick on velocity, but it's it's a useful measure for a team. But it doesn't talk about anything for a team state or for a project state. It really does not. So if you can't actually show working product, then. I wonder about, you know, what does your velocity really mean? So I want to go back to the principles in the Agile community that says working, what is it in the manifesto? Um, Working product is the best measure of progress, something like that. Yeah, I think that's close. Yeah, close enough. Um, So I really want to show people working product because that's how you build up trust, Right, so your managers are asking you because back in the waterfall days, they couldn't see any value until you were done or maybe until you were passed on and fixed a whole bunch of books. So, (laughs) I mean, it's true. And even if you were like me and use um, a stage delivery (coughs) life cycle, which is incremental, they could not always see progress at at a regular interval. I happen to make one month milestone so we could always see progress then but even then not everything was a finished feature so i wasn't smart enough to to insist that people work through the architecture not just across it so i think it's really important to say how do we how do we show people where we are and we can show them with many kinds of measurements and if we focus on working product that feeds back it's again with the learning into small features and small stories that allow us to show value and to deliver working product um, on a regular basis. So you brought up managers, and this is another topic that I get a lot. Um, I do a lot of workshops where uh, we talk about advanced Scrum and and uh, people bring their questions and we workshop through them. And I always get the question of, what do managers do on a scrum team? How do managers help agile teams? And so you've dedicated a chapter to this. I think it's one of the few times that manage... Because if you look at the manifesto, management is not... Uh, they're not mentioned. If you right. look at the scrum guide, management, they're not mentioned. Um, and so you've, expl- you've made them a, a, a first-class citizen on an agile team, which I think is important. Uh, because if I'm a manager and I don't see a future for myself on an Agile team, I don't want to have Agile teams, right? <laughs> well, why would you? Exactly. <laughs> why would you? So in your experience, you know, how can the managers out there, the ones that are, are staring down the barrel of an Agile team, how can they frame it in their minds uh, what their new role is and how they can contribute? So it's all about servant leadership. And this is... You know, we have done our managers such a disservice over years and years and years. I actually, um, so I didn't talk about throughput accounting in this book. I'm getting ready to write an agile management book. I know you're so surprised. Um, (laughs) What, you have another book uh, in, in process? I don't believe it. Yeah, I know. I know. So I think that part of the problem is 
our managers don't know what their jobs are. So when Esther and I wrote Behind Closed Doors, Secrets of Great Management, we talked about a middle manager and what his job could be because he was Sam, the practically perfect manager. And what I find is that um, first level managers often don't know what their jobs are and they're stuck in resource efficiency as opposed to flow efficiency thinking. And sometimes the organization uh, reinforces the resource efficiency because their managers, right, the directors and the VPs will say, are you utilizing everybody? And that's not the question. The question is, what's the team's throughput? So when managers don't understand that their job is to focus on collaboration so that they can get that they can allow the team its maximum throughput, right? Managers create the environment and the culture in which teams and other people can succeed because you might have a work group as opposed to a team. And when the manager focuses on how can we help collaborative teams, how can we create an environment in which people can solve problems jointly, whether or not they are part of a work group or a team, how do we help people um, get the throughput that they need? How do we help people get the workspace? How do we help people um, remove impediments? All of these things are the manager's jobs. And we don't teach managers how to do that. We don't even teach managers how to recognize that. So it's it's so important to say, how can a manager help a team? And then with the program management book and the project portfolio book, I hope I talked enough about what the manager's job is and how you can start to think about collaborating across the organization. But I think it's so important to say to managers, yeah, we have not done a good job by you. And you might not know your job. You might think that your job is to, um, excuse me, inflict help on a team by telling them what the architecture should be or telling them how to, how to do this work. And instead, the team needs to figure out how to work together. But you create the container, the environment, the culture for them that allows them to really do great work. And the problem is managers do that in teams, right? So all the first-line managers need to work together and all the middle managers need to work together. And we don't have enough writing about that nor enough training about that. Yeah, it's definitely – so coming from a, a career of middle and I guess more middle to upper management, it's not uh, well-known. It's not a concept. It's something that – Actually, what I have found, is it's more competitive on those teams. And so yeah. one middle manager is trying to outrun the next middle manager so that the blame shifts somewhere else and perhaps the promotion to director comes sooner. And so you see a lot of those games rather than creating the, these healthier, uh, more collaborative cultures. Well, and that's a, that's a function of HR and the incentives and how we actually define um, the roles of everybody. I did a six or seven part series about Agile HR that touched on some of that, but I have to write some more of that. Yeah, I think that's actually going to be the next, uh, I think, playing field for, for Agile. It's going to be, all right, perhaps we're getting pretty good at, at the, the technical excellence. We're getting pretty good at uh, using Scrum. 
Uh, we're getting pretty good at all these other things, but now how do financial practices, HR practices, compliance, legal hierarchies, how do how does all this thinking actually limit agility? And I think that's going to be, I think, some pretty interesting ground to cover over the next few years. I Yeah, I think so, too. So I'm working on a geographically distributed teams book with Mark Kilby. Um, we're pair writing it, so we're having a lot of fun with the writing. And we we already decided we needed to do an experience report um, about our experiences so far. I'm hoping that we finish that um, soonish in the next few months <laughs> and and I'm working on a product owner book and then and then comes the agile management book because I I need to figure out I need to start writing this I need I actually need to experiment with my clients just because I have an idea it does not mean it's right well and I, and I think that's a great place for us to end with the idea that uh, when you talk about starting somewhere uh, because you offer such a, a practical pragmatic book um, with a lot of places to start. I love how at the end you give a, hey, if you're, if, you really, if you're stuck, start here. And one of the things you talk about is starting with yourself. And I think you model that just wonderfully by just what you just said. There's still experiments that you want to try. There's things that you want to learn. There's things that you still want to write. And I think that when we start with ourselves, uh, because if I, if I as a coach, if I hold limiting beliefs, well, guess what? My team will hold those <laughs> limiting, limiting beliefs as well. And suddenly I have two problems to fix instead of one. Um, you know, I think it's great that you put that in there, that, that we as coaches, scrum masters, agilists, we have to get our house in order before we're off coaching others. And we have to really start with embracing these ideas ourselves. And so I, I think that's just a wonderful way uh, to get people motivated. And, and have you seen that successful uh, in the people that you've coached? Well, it has. Yes, I've. So when I, I know you're going to be so surprised. I thought I had all the answers about 10 years ago. Um, I didn't. I know what a surprise. So that's when I said I need to really embrace the agile mindset, the mindset of experiments, the growth mindset, all of these things that say to me, you might you have a lot of good ideas, Joanna, but you have not had all the experiences. You have not had all the learning. It's time for just a little humility here and to figure out what what can you do as a fast experiment. And when I did that, all of a sudden, I started to learn a lot more, a lot faster. And that's when I said, okay, this is what I need to do with my clients, not just with myself. So that's one of the reasons that you see this theme of learning in the book, that I I know that as I say, how can I start with myself? I end up getting a lot better, a lot faster. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. A good friend of ours, uh, Tim Oninger, nudges me pretty regularly about uh, whether or not I'm being curious. and uh, Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. And I, and I always find value in that because typically when, when he's saying that, I'm usually being judgmental. <laughs> but uh, but it, it's just a great reminder that for, for us that we can always be curious. And even though, um, you know, we've been, I, I, you know, I've had some birthdays come up and uh, we've been doing this a long time and uh, but still learn something new every day. And that's uh, that. Sometimes that's humbling, and sometimes we need that reminder. But I think that be curious and starting with yourself, just such a great first step, and it uh, it can lead to that growth mindset and just this openness to 
uh, a whole bunch of learnings that otherwise you might have missed. And then you fall into some of the traps we've talked about through this entire episode about uh, the cost of delay or getting stuck in these these other these other limiting uh, beliefs and structures that prevent you from delivering value. So I think it's just a great and again one of those things that's not written a lot uh, about, especially in the agile books of hey inspect what you're thinking first and then let's start applying some of these practices. So just really appreciate that as well. Well, thank you. So Johanna, clearly I love the book. Um, I was uh, happy to be uh, an early reviewer, so I'm I'm heavily biased. But I think uh, through this conversation, I, I I know the listeners will have heard at least one gem that uh, that I think will resonate with them. How can the how can the listeners get the book? Um, and, and just are, are there anything? Is there anything else going on around the book that you want to promote? So the book is available on almost all platforms right now. So certainly at the Prags, and you can get the ebook and the paper as a combo, which is really nice because uh, I happen to read mostly an ebook. And then every so often I want paper, which is nice. And I believe that the book is up on Amazon and, and, and on Safari. So if you, if you tend to read on Safari, yes, you can read the book there. Um, I am doing a number of podcasts, and I'm actually um, starting writing workshops in January again. So if people want to learn how to write, I use all of the Agile approaches. I know you're so surprised. Um, <laughs> working in 15-minute time boxes for and stuff like that, learning and adapting, reflecting as you write. And I am... Um, I am not I I finally finished my last trip in 2017. So I have not yet figured out all of my travel for 2018. So I'm not quite sure what I should um be plugging. But as long as people look at the book and say, "Oh, this sounds really interesting." And if you're having any trouble at all with your supposedly agile project, this is the book for you. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I uh, I hope that all the listeners out there pick up a copy. It's just it's full of practical, actionable items, which I which I always find helpful. And I've actually, as an early reviewer, I was able to use a few things from the book with teams immediately, and uh, was able to do some quick experiments and got some quick wins. And, and so it was really fun to do that. I will get uh, links in the show notes to the other podcast episodes where Johanna's been talking about the books and probably went into some different areas than what we did here. And so that you can hear more about that. We'll link to uh, the Pragmatic Programmer site where you can buy the book. We'll link to Amazon. Uh, that's an affiliate link. So if you use the Amazon link, uh, it helps out the show. So, you know, but definitely support the, the Prags as well. Um, we'll also link to Johanna's workshop uh, site so you can see what she's up to and, and stay apprised. I'm in the same boat as Johanna. I have my 2017 travel ended uh, last week. Uh, unfortunately, well, I was in Orlando for a week, but now I'm back in Chicago. The weather is dramatically different. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, I have no idea what 2018 is going to look like other than a few possible things. So we'll have to figure out uh, how the conference paths are going to cross next year, Johanna. We will. Yes, I saw you. I think I only saw you briefly kind of to wave at Agile 2017. So I think that this year we need um, much more in-depth conversation. Yep, I'm lo definitely looking forward to it. So thank you again uh, for doing the show. Really appreciated you talking about uh, your newest book. For the listeners out there, uh, the numbers have skyrocketed 
uh, as far as downloads over the past few months. Even though we've not been as uh, consistent with delivering shows due to travel and, and conference engagements. But um, I just really appreciate all the sharing. Uh, we have some Patreon uh, subscribers that we're going to start talking about. So Patreon is a new thing that we started as an experiment. Uh, a number of you have uh, signed up, so we're going to start announcing those soon. And just so thank you for that support. Thank you for being out there. Um, please go out, buy Johanna's book, uh, leave some notes either on Twitter or in the show notes. Let us know what you think of it. I'm sure you're going to find uh, some wonderful things. And other than that, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for being there and uh, have a great afternoon. Thanks for listening to Agile for Humans. Let's keep the conversation going. Drop us a question on Twitter at Agile for Humans or visit agileforhumans.com.